You're listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. This is the official podcast of the Breath and the Clay Creative Arts Movement. I'm your host, Stephen Roach. This is episode four. Today we're going to listen to a message by author and speaker Gregory Wolf called The Wound of Beauty. Gregory has authored several books, including Beauty Will Save the World, Intruding Upon the Timeless, Meditations on Art, Faith, and Mystery, and his most recent work, The Operation of Grace, Further Essays on Art, Faith, and Mystery. Gregory is also the visionary behind the Image Journal, which is a publication on art, faith, and mystery. You can find out more about Gregory Wolf at gregorywolf.com. This is The Wound of Beauty. Talk about beauty this morning because people always come up to me afterwards and tell me about these two things. So I'm going to just get them out of the way real quick. The talk's called The Wound of Beauty. Oops. And I'll show you some olives here. First point is I'm going to be speaking primarily about the beauty of art today, not the beauty of nature, although I love that. Sunsets are good, um, because that's what I know about. Um, So beauty will be in the realm of the arts this morning. Um, The other point I want to make is that when people talk about beauty, there's always someone who says, well, yeah, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. It's an old concept. My response to that is beauty cannot be reduced to taste. I don't like olives, but I would be a fool if I denied that they were among the most glorious foodstuffs in creation. You know how people often defend the fact that they don't like food? Like, ooh, tomatoes, yuck, right? Like, I'm not like that. I feel ashamed of myself that I don't like olives. (laughs) I hate that I hate olives. I want to love olives. So I would say that you can't reduce beauty to taste. Something bigger than that. Yes, we have different ideas of what may be considered beauty. And I will grant you one other thing. Yes, culture does shape what we think to be beautiful. Some people come out of a culture that sees something like this and thinks it's pretty great. Sorry, just lost myself here. I'm back. We have different cultural ideas of beauty that shape how we experience things, and they change from time to time. So here's one. Once upon a time, that was considered the best body shape imaginable. But can we agree that ladies are looking good in general? (laughs) Now, strange as it may seem, I actually believe that beauty needs to be defended. I know it sounds crazy, right? Who's against beauty? Beauty is a great thing. Seems kind of redundant, like having a bunch of cheerleaders at a sunset. Go, son, go! Yay for purple! (laughs) 
But I would argue that underlying our culture, underlying our religious culture too in this country is a deep uncertainty, a nervousness, and anxiety about what beauty is and what beauty does. And as scripture says, we should always have reasons for the hope that is in us. So this morning, I want to talk a little bit about why I think we should have some hope for beauty. And to not be apologetic about it. To not be guilty about it. To not have to be defensive about it. And I'm going to invoke some old-fashioned terms. You may have heard about them. So in addition to beauty, I'm going to talk about truth. I'm going to talk about goodness. In fact, they kind of used to belong together, all three of those things, right? Goodness, truth, and beauty. They're what used to be called the transcendentals. The transcendentals. Greek thinkers, Christian theologians alike talked about the transcendentals. Why? Because these three things, these three qualities of being, were transcendent because only God possessed them in an infinite degree. Only God is perfect truth, perfect goodness, perfect beauty. I happen to believe it's no accident that these three make a kind of trinity. Somehow there's something cosmically divine in threes. Here's how one writer put it. This is where the head may start to hurt a little bit, but bear with me. One writer said, truth is being, or God, who is pure being. Truth is being as knowable, knowable, truth, knowable. Goodness is being as lovable that moves my heart. Beauty is being as attractive, as desirable. Beauty is that which attracts me, draws me, it stirs my desire. So, simply put, what I want to say this morning is pretty straightforward. I want to argue that while beauty is not greater than goodness and truth, it does belong in equal measure with them. It has equal dignity and equal value. And the reason that this is important is because while we may pay lip service to beauty, it's often demoted, in my opinion, to the Cinderella against the two big sisters of goodness and truth. Oh, there she is. Goodness and truth, goodness and truth. Nothing can ever assail those. That's the meat and potatoes, the bread and butter of the moral life in the Western tradition. Similarly, we often talk about faith and reason, faith and reason. But again, that's two. There's, where's the third term? Goodness, truth, beauty. Faith, reason, imagination. We need to supply these third terms to keep a balance, to keep a wholeness. 
And yet so often they, these third terms are lost. Now, I understand I'm talking a bit abstractly here. I'm going to be trying to get more concrete over the course of the talk. I hope that helps. What I want to say is that in the history of Western culture, and that means both the classical Greek and Roman past as well as the Christian story, Judeo-Christian story, beauty has played the Cinderella because we have, a, have had a divided attitude toward it. And it begins at the very beginning. In Jerusalem, we have commandments against idols and graven images. Absolutely. That's fundamental. We understand that. But within a few pages of those same prohibitions are hymns of praise to the craftsmanship of God and Bezalel, his super, superstar artist, who creates the tabernacle. Oh, sorry. I'm all in favor of truth and goodness. I'm kind of just making fun here. Just that when you separate them from beauty, they start looking a little weird. Now, if graven images are bad, and I agree that they are, the Bible tells us this is, this is good. And this is very good. And this is what we should be up to. Same thing in the Greek world. Plato, on the one hand, says poetry is like the descent of God into man. It's a divine madness. It's beautiful. It's powerful. It's mystical. And then in his book, The Republic, he goes, those poets are really dangerous. You can never predict what they're going to say. They stir up trouble. Kick them out. See what I'm saying? We have this divided history. And I will be the last one to try to pretend that there isn't real tension. The tension is real. The tension is real. I don't discount that. But our fear of going wrong sometimes forces us to, to ditch something, to throw the baby out with that bathwater. All I'm arguing for is letting the baby swim around in the bathwater. That's all. That's all I'm asking for. Keep that bathwater. So there have been attacks on beauty. It is what? Unpredictable, right? It is seductive. It has this power to attract us. It might attract us someplace we don't want to be. So we have a tradition that has come and gone over the centuries, over the millennia, where beauty becomes something that needs to be attacked, and attacked from seemingly high moral principles because it's seen as an idol. Beauty is considered seductive. It's also considered anesthetizing, right? If, you're, if you are entranced by beauty, your senses are dulled. Your openness to the suffering and the injustice of the world is dulled, is lulled into a kind of pleasurable reverie. That's the age-old argument. Even our, one of our founding books, The Odyssey, 
of Homer has two moments, just like we have this ambivalence in the Bible, this ambivalence in Plato. Think of the Odyssey. There's this scene, you all probably know it, just because it's become a byword in our culture, where he is passing by the island of the sirens. The sirens are the beautiful ladies again. Watch out for the beautiful ladies. And what, is, what does Odysseus have to do? He has to tell his crew to lash himself to the mast so that he can sail past without wanting to... Hello, ladies. But then there's this other scene that's not as well known. There's this other scene, and he, you know, the whole book is about him going on different journeys. So there's this completely different scene where he washes up on a beach. He washes up on a beach, and he's full of seaweed. He's kind of got like a little seaweed loincloth going on here. And he's, oh, there, there he is with the sirens. And, you know, he's, He's stumbling on the beach and he sees this young woman playing with her friends on the beach, playing volleyball or something. And he kind of staggers up and he sees her and there's a kind of innocence about her, a frolicsomeness about her, and he sits there and he's like, he's stunned, right? And he's, he's kind of open, he's, he's sort of, like he's awoken from slumber. Her name is Nausicaa. And we have an identical issue, feminine beauty as potentially opening up the soul. And in one case, you're lashed to the mast. In the other, it becomes something deeply mysterious and deeply beautiful. But these arguments against beauty persist. And they, they, they come back again and again. One needn't say that it's always religion's fault. I think of the kinds of Marxist thought, for example, 150 years ago, that argued that beauty is a sugar coating around the raw truth of capitalist oppression. So this, this tendency to see beauty as a distraction from justice is deep in our history. So one of the ironies is that beauty can be attacked by religious folks and by secular folks, but in both cases they think they're being very moral and very, very upright when they do so. Both attacks on beauty are based, in my opinion, on that aspect of beauty that Wendy Steiner has called the scandal of pleasure. The scandal of pleasure. Because you know, if it feels good, don't do it. Right? That's our instinct. Pleasure scares us. It tends, it tends to make us fearful. And we think maybe there's something wrong if there's pleasure involved. You know, the great writer H.L. Mencken once defined the Puritan as the person who has the haunting fear that someone, somewhere, might be having fun. <laughs> I'm gonna point out in a minute that I think that pleasure is one of the signs 
of beauty's goodness. So what I want to say tonight, in short, is it's time to bring beauty back to the party to give her a glass slipper and invite her to the prom. Now, I want to take a moment to read you a somewhat heavy quote um, from a guy named, okay, you need a PhD just to pronounce his name, which I don't have, so I'll probably get this wrong. A Swiss theologian from the 20th century named Hans Urs von Balthasar. Isn't that great? I feel like I, had, I got a PhD just from saying it. This guy is big, though. He's big. He's influenced incredible numbers of subsequent theology. He's taught in seminaries everywhere, Protestant, Catholic. Influenced popes. Cool guy. Pretty intense. Most of his writing's above my pay grade, so I don't want you to, you know, to get the wrong idea. I've just scampered around the foothills of his thought. I have not made the ascent. But he makes a really, really good in argument around truth, goodness, and beauty. And what he, here's what he says. Von Balthasar says, the problem in life is that we're fallen creatures. We're fallen. We're sinful. We're messed up. Um, we get things wrong. And we argue and we fight about what things mean. And especially we argue and we fight over what is true and what is good, right? That's some of the most intense argumentation conflict in the world comes over competing ideas over what is true and what is good. So in some ways what he says is, because of our fallenness, we bring, we have an, an agenda to almost all these arguments and debates that we have. We've got a chip on our shoulder. We got, we, we're, we haven't, we're interested. We're interested parties. We have our own interest, our own, <coughs> our own iron in the fire. Beauty, he says, has this amazing capacity, however, in this world where we're always with our agendas and our arguments and our platforms and our manifestos, to sail in underneath the radar and pierce the heart, to go beyond argumentation and touch the heart. A stealth bomber flying in under the radar and in a time which has been dominated and is dominated by anger, by fighting, by conflict, by argumentation. And where we in the Christian church have been conditioned to believe that our role is to be fighters and arguers constantly, that that's what true discipleship means, need to listen to this argument. Because beauty transcends our pragmatism transcends our anger, transcends our agenda. Beauty is disinterested, von Balthasar says. It has no agenda. It's like a ray of the beatific vision itself of God that can pierce the heart. And that goes back to my title, The Wound of Beauty. 
Well, Balthazar's entire massive theological multi-volume work, which again, I've like read the index of, it's three sets of volumes and it's based on these three transcendentals. What does he start with? The first seven books are theological aesthetics. He starts with beauty. He starts his massive Germanic theological enterprise with beauty. And I'm going to read you a quote from the very beginning of that very first book on beauty. And it's a little dense, but I'll unpack it slightly because I think it's cool. It's one of those things that at least gives me the shivers when I, when I read it. It still does. So at the beginning of his uber-maximum work of theology, he says, Beauty is the word which shall be our first. Beauty is the last thing which the thinking intellect dares to approach, since only it dances as an uncontained splendor around the double constellation of the true and the good and their inseparable relation to one another. Beauty is the disinterested one, a word which both imperceptibly and unmistakably has bid farewell to our new world, a world of interest, leaving that world to its own avarice and sadness. No longer loved or fostered by religion, beauty is lifted from its face as a mask, and its absence exposes features on that face which threaten to become incomprehensible to man. I know, it's kind of dense, right? But his point is, beauty is disinterested, but it's been banished, which leaves us to this pragmatic, grasping world that's everything is about utility. And beauty is treated as a coating, as a surface, so it's lifted off the face. Oh, let's take off, let's just take off the sugar coating and let's just have the bitter pill. So that's what he's saying. He says, we no longer dare to believe in beauty and we make of it a mere appearance in order the more easily to dispose of it. Our situation today shows that beauty demands for itself at least as much courage and decision as do truth and goodness. We can be sure that whoever sneers at her name as if she were an ornament of a bourgeois past whether he admits it or not, can no longer pray and soon will no longer be able to love. Do you get a little goosebumps there? I mean, again, I, it's dense, okay, and I can't, couldn't get past page 43. But I know something important is happening here, and it's exciting to me that this man's thought is inspiring so many theologians, and pastors across denominational borders. It's, a, it's an amazing thing. And I love that beauty requires courage, because it does. The first volume that he's writing is called Seeing the Form, Seeing the Form, Theological Aesthetics, because he says what comes first is our encounter with the beauty of the Lord. Our Christian life begins with that perception of the radiant beauty of God. That's what touches us. That's what moves our heart. 
So in a sense, it all begins with perception. God is infinitely beautiful, gracious, merciful. For him, that means, most importantly, that beauty is an experience that comes before that imagination, you might say, that intuition, that holistic perception comes before we get to the reasoning and rational and legal parts. In other words, Christianity, beauty is so important to our faith because our faith is primarily about being struck by an encounter, an encounter with a presence. And only after we have that encounter with his presence do we start working up the doctrines and the moral systems because morality comes out of our desire to honor this presence that we've encountered, right? It's how do I behave rightly towards this presence who is in my life and who I want to honor. But if we put the intellectual, doctrinal, rational, and we put the moral ahead of the encounter, it all starts to go wrong. Becomes moralism and legalism. We lose the compassion and the mercy of God. So beauty, like Odysseus on the beach, leaves us open. It opens us up. It wounds us in a way. Have you ever felt that? You've seen something so beautiful, it's like an ache in your heart. It evokes our desire. And desire often feels painful like a wound. And yet, mysteriously, there's pleasure. Oh, there's, there he is with Nausicaa. See the seaweed? <laughs> Artfully placed. All right, here's another guy. He's French. He's not as Germanic. So this is a little easier. Jacques Maritain, another 20th century guy, another art and faith guy. Here's what he said. The beautiful is essentially delightful. This is why, of its very nature, and precisely as beautiful, it stirs desire and produces love. Let's see if I can get that quote up there. Oops. Okay. It stirs desire and produces love, whereas the true as such only illumines. It is for beauty that wisdom is loved. Love, in its turn, produces ecstasy. That is to say, it puts the lover outside of himself. Ecstasy, of which the soul experiences a diminished form when it is seized by the beauty of the work of art, and the fullness when it is absorbed like the dew by the beauty of God. So if we listen to Balthazar Ameritan, we see that beauty is not just a surface. It's not just a mask. Beauty is a way of knowing Not just decorating. This is fundamental, right? If you want to, this is what he was talking about when he talked about the mask. If, if beauty is just a sugar coating around truth, then it's less than the truth. Do you see what I'm saying? If beauty is 
packaging around content. There's a word I hate, content. People are talking about content all the time. If beauty is just the sugar coating around the pill, screw that. I might as well just deal with the bitterness right away. Like, why bother? But if beauty is equal, then beauty is a way of knowing. It's a different way of knowing than reason. It's a different way of knowing than faith. But it is parallel. All right. Lots of heavy stuff here. Let me move towards the finish line by trying to talk a little bit about beauty and truth first and then beauty and goodness. We talk, we've been talking about beauty and it all makes sense so far, but there's still the problem. What does it actually look like? One of the dangers is that we reduce beauty to prettiness. And this is one of the biggest problems with our definition of beauty. What does beauty encompass? Is beauty, what's the opposite of beauty? Is ugliness the opposite of beauty? Well, maybe. I want to try to put a slightly different context to it. One of the tensions that we live in with beauty is the tension between the ideal and the real. This also runs deep into our past, deep into our cultural past. So this dividedness about beauty, one of the ways that it manifests itself is with the Greek idea of perfection. Perfection. Beauty is perfection. Here's the Venus de Milo. She's minus arms, but everything else is perfect. Okay? Sort of ideal proportion. And this haunts us, right? This haunts us to the present day. Without this, you couldn't sell fashion magazines, right? You couldn't sell Vogue. You couldn't do half of what goes on the television these days. There's this sense of this pressure towards perfection, right? Towards the ideal. And we all measure ourselves against it. It's powerful. It goes on right through Western Civ, right through the Christian era, good old Michelangelo. And yet, at the same time, our tradition also knows tragedy, brokenness, human frailty. The same culture that produced the Venus de Milo produced Oedipus Rex. The same culture that produced Michelangelo's David produces King Lear. So what is it? How do we live in this tension between the ideal and the darkest parts of the real? Where does beauty fit? Well, precisely what I would argue is that Christ, our faith in Christ, is what deepens the dialogue, deepens and synthesizes and makes whole that tension. And for this, I'm going to call on yet another heavy hitter named Joe Ratzinger. Another big theologian guy. 
former pope. He said that Christianity heals this tension between the ideal and the pure, purely literalistically real. And he says that Christ's passion finally brings these two things together and gives beauty a deeper meaning. Here's what Ratzinger said. In Christ's passion, Greek aesthetics, so worthy of admiration because of its perceived contact with the divine, remember the God coming down into the poet in Plato, Greek aesthetics, so worthy of admiration, is not removed but overcome. The experience of beauty has been given new depth, new realism. He who is beauty itself let himself be struck in the face, spat upon, crowned with thorns. But precisely in this face, disfigured in this way, the authentic ultimate beauty appears. The beauty of love that goes all the way to the end. And that just because of this reveals itself to be stronger than falsehood and violence. Good stuff. And so in our tradition, it's possible for us to think of the cross as beautiful. This form of capital punishment that was distinguished primarily from other forms of capital punishment in its time precisely because of its shamefulness, the humiliation of it, the embarrassing awkwardness, the uncomfortable humiliation of it, becomes a supreme symbol of beauty. So I would argue that beauty lives in the tension between the ideal and the real. Because only in Christ can we understand how to live in that tension authentically. How to accept the truth of the world, which is at times dark and painful. That involves suffering. That doesn't paper over suffering. That doesn't make beauty an anesthetist, you know, an aesthetic against beauty. But can give hope to the darkness of the world. So, beauty has to entail truth, the truth about the world. But beauty is essential to truth because without it, truth without beauty is abstraction, is a set of propositions, dry as dust. It's the letter of the law without the spirit. Only beauty can incarnate truth in the concrete, in flesh and blood. Christianity is a, a religion of the incarnation, of God become man, of flesh. And the only way we ever believe in the power of our faith is when we see it change people. Because that is the sign of Christ's presence in our midst. He changes us. And we know him when we experience that difference in that person we encounter. Truth without beauty is abstract. How much of our religious discourse has given in to that kind of abstraction? It just becomes propaganda. The sugarcoating around the pill of truth. Now, 
beauty and goodness, and I'm heading towards the finish line here, folks. Beauty has the capacity to help us value the good, especially the goodness of the most ordinary things. The greatest epics, the most terrible tragedies, all have one goal, to bring us back to the ordinary and help us to love and cherish it. What does Odysseus do? He travels through all, past all the monsters and all the sirens and the beautiful ladies only to arrive home and to know who he is when he meets his wife and to say and to, to, to point to their marital bed, the, the font of their relationship to each other and say, this is who I am. I am your husband. This is our bed. All the monsters have led just to going back to the master bedroom, master bath, right? Odysseus goes by Circe, Cyclops, but he ends up in his own bedroom. Beauty helps us to see in moral goodness by taking us out of ourselves. Remember what Maritain said about ecstasy? Beauty decenters us. Beauty takes us from our painful self-consciousness, our painful awareness of our neediness and our weakness and our fragility. It literally takes us out of ourselves where we are immersed in the world that God has given us suddenly when we are moved by beauty. The Harvard scholar, Elaine Scarry, an avowed atheist, said, radical decentering is the heart of what beauty gives us. A beautiful thing is not the only thing in the world that can make us feel adjacent to someone else or something else, nor is it the only thing in the world that brings us a state of pleasure. But beauty appears to be one of the few phenomena that brings us adjacent to the world outside of us and to give pleasure simultaneously. Beauty calls us to an awareness of the other. Elaine Scarry's written this book, by the way, called On Beauty and Being Just. It's her response, even as an atheist, atheist thinker, to the idea that beauty is a distraction from being just in the world. To the contrary, she says, beauty makes us care for the fragility of the world. It makes us want to, to cherish the world in front of us. Beauty tutors our compassion. It makes us more prone to love and to see the attraction of goodness. It takes us out of our self-referentiality and vice to see, to see through the eyes of the other, whether that other is the artist herself or a character in her story. Because beauty endows goodness with mercy, it enables us to see how difficult it is to become good. How often one good lives in tension with another, how difficult it is to live in that tension. So goodness without beauty, think about that for a moment. Goodness without beauty is moralism, holier than thou. But beauty gives goodness flesh, mercy. All right. 
let's take it home. Just want to do a little simple thing here to end up. I want to take you through three works of Michelangelo. Just thought that, just that, and nothing else. And yet, these three works to me are deeply instructive and deeply moving about what the nature of beauty in the light of faith is. I want to start with the one that you all know. This is the famous Pietà. It's in the Vatican, St. Peter's. What do we know about this? What do we know? We know that in a sense, this work has been considered the epitome of kind of pious Christian art. Which is kind of ironic because it almost caused riots when it was first unveiled. Like, we look on this now, we're conditioned by history, and we suddenly think, oh, this is like as, this is about as conventional and safe as it gets. Well, this was actually like throwing a Molotov cocktail into church in his, in his day. Why? Well, first of all, the Virgin Mary is kind of a babe, okay? She is as, she's no older than her son, maybe younger. Something weird's going on there. But what is it? It's the ideal, right? It's the ideal. It's the perfect form, right? The classical proportions. The pyramid. You see the pyramid shape, the the triangle, which is the ultimately stable kind of form? It's peaceful, right? It is... This moment in which Christ has come down from the cross, Christ is, has died. And he is, once again, ironically, in the lap of his mother, a mother who gave him life. Now, in the terrible, wrenching irony, the tragedy of the cross has her son in her lap once again, and yet he is dead. But in this work, Michelangelo gives us a work of serenity, Neoplatonic, if you want to get technical, ideal perfection. Well, here's the thing. You know about this work. You don't know that most of you probably don't. I didn't. That he kept on making pietas. Because it was one of the most powerful things to him. But they changed. They changed as he changed. As he went from being an idealist to understanding faith more deeply in his life. And so he went from this to this. This is known as the Florence Pieta. But notice something very different. Where we had the perfect sort of horizontality, that pyramid shape. That Now we have a kind of verticality, very skinny and vertical, right? And it's also slightly wobbly. Like you're not sure it's going to tip over. Do you see what I'm saying? So that triangle gives you what? Serenity and stability. This is much more full of anxiety, right? It's much more full of stress. It's full of deeper emotion, in my opinion. Because he's trying to get at the real poignancy of Christ's passion, his 
death, sacrificial, redemptive death on the cross for us. And he wants there to be tension in this work. Notice the face of Nicodemus above. Some of you who may know the art history know that he made his own face, Nicodemus. He brings himself into the story. But this was a work that in and of itself didn't seem to be coming together for him. At one point, he gets so mad, he takes a sledgehammer and he lops off the arm of Nicodemus, which gets put back on. And he abandons the work. You can see how rough it is at the bottom there. It's not even fully finished. But he's after something, and it's no longer the ideal. It is beauty, but a different kind of beauty. This is a beauty that allows for the darkness and the sense of loss and grief in life, but also the poignancy of mercy and hope. And then he goes and he makes a final pieta, the Rondonini pieta. This is near the end of his life, and the guy lives to practically 90. He's gifted with a long life. And you can see it's unfinished. But look what he's done. He has followed the logic of that verticality, that sort of instability, but he's simplified the entire arrangement. He's focused in on the human relationship between mother and son. He's streamlined everything to the intimacy of the moment. He lets the emotion carry it, not the structure. And he gives Mary this intimacy where she's just looking over the shoulder of her son who she can barely hold up, who seems to be slipping from her grasp. I don't know about you, but to me, this is far more moving in the end than this. This makes me want to weep. This moves my heart. This is beauty living in the tension between the real and the ideal. This is beauty as a form that accepts the brokenness and yet lives in hope. One of the powerful things about the later works of Michelangelo is how many of them he leaves unfinished, as if aware of his own inability to create perfection. He builds the incomplete into the work itself. He understands that beauty can become an idol. And so the unfinishedness, the incompleteness, becomes his final tribute to the perfection of God and an awareness of the need for humility on the part of the artist. Because let's face it, beauty needs goodness and truth too. I would be the last to deny this. Beauty without goodness is frigid and lifeless. It can be pure virtuosity, form, but without meaning, without heart. Beauty without truth is a lie. It's just the mask. The mask is not connected to the face. These three belong together. But in my opinion, 
the one that needs the most work at the moment, the most help, the biggest boost to be seated at the table with the other two is beauty. So let us pursue true beauty of the kind that Michelangelo wrought in his pietas because it wounds us, pierces our hearts, opens us up to grace. Let us then free beauty to dance in uncontained splendor around the double constellation of the true and the good. Thank you very much.